You're listening to another life-transforming message from Awakened Church with campuses in San Diego and Salt Lake City. To find out more about us, go to awakenedchurch.com. Thank you for that. Hey, hello, sir. I'm not going to do that anymore, I promise, because um, there's a lot of beautiful faces that I probably recognize. It is a heavy but a really important topic that's on my heart. It's something I've taught about before. And every time I teach about it, I think I'm, I'm going to give the same message and it always is different. So I actually don't know what's about to happen, but it's one that when you get past the problem, you get past understanding the roadblock, it's immensely hopeful. It's, it's actually, it's the thing that transforms what I have come to believe is my disqualification is actually the doorway into inherit. It's the doorway into power. It's the doorway into identity. But we don't step through the door because we think the door means something's gone wrong. Does that make sense? And we're going to go all the way back to the beginning. We're going to go all the way back to Genesis. And so I'm going to just jump right into it. My usual problem is um, I say 30 minutes, and then like an hour and 20 minutes later, I say, all right, will the, the, the ministry team come forward? I'm not going to do that tonight. It says, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, it's really interesting. Because to understand, like, the profound moment that is happening here, it's important to remember Adam and Eve have been chilling in the garden for a long time. We don't know exactly how long but long enough that the garden is normal to them. Adam and Eve probably walk past the the fruit of the tree like twice a week in their like walks with the Lord. And for some reason up until this point, the tree has never been a problem for them. The tree has never been a temptation. They've never struggled with this. And the serpent knows that. The serpent knows if I say, do it to Eve, she's going to be like, no. Why would I do that? I love hanging out with God. This is amazing. Everything is good. So he doesn't go for the temptation. He actually goes somewhere else. He says, did God really say not to eat from any tree in the garden? And he's like disarming Eve. And she says, no, he said we can eat from the trees in the garden. He said, don't eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Don't even touch it or you'll die. And this is where he outsmarts us. He says, You will certainly not die, said the serpent to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So if you look at that sentence, for God knows, is the subject of that sentence the tree? Is the subject of that sentence Eve? The subject of the sentence is God. The serpent knows that if I leave you in communion with God and I say, hey, you should go break relationship, you're going to be like, why would I do that? So he starts by saying, wait, wait, are you sure that God is trustworthy? Are you sure that God is protecting you and not preventing you from stepping into joy? He's like keeping something away from you. The first first curveball in the garden isn't when Eve takes the fruit. It's when the fear that God isn't trustworthy enters her mind. The fear that God is holding something back, that he's insecure, that he isn't looking out for your best. 
And all of a sudden, this is interesting to me, fear is introduced into the human race. This is the first time Eve has ever felt fear, which is an interesting concept. If you think neurologically, do you know there is one emotion that your brain doesn't know what to do with? Shame. Your brain knows how to adaptively adjust to every emotion on the human spectrum, including fear, if it's like a different kind of fear, not this kind of fear. Like if I am, you know, walking down the street and a dog starts running after me, barking, I'm going to feel fear in my body, but my brain knows what to do with that. It's physical fear. It's visceral fear. And it shuts down my prefrontal cortex, all the parts of my brain that I need to reason and to reflect and to think, am I a good person? It shuts that off. He said, you don't need that right now. It shuts down your digestion. It shuts down all these things that you don't need. And it lights up your limbic brain, which is your reactive brain, your fear brain, your emotional brain. And it sends adrenaline through your body and you run. Or maybe if you're Pastor John, you fight the dog. I don't know. But your brain knows what to do with it. Joy, fear, sadness. Your brain knows what to do with these. Shame is the one emotion your brain doesn't know what to do with because since it doesn't have a way to categorize fear that's about your identity, it says, well, I know what to do with fear. And so it sends you into visceral physical fear. And the one thing that you need in shame, your prefrontal cortex, the ability to tell yourself, no, I am good, I am loved, I am known, I am accepted. I lose access to that part of my brain. So you're witnessing the introduction of a foreign occupant in, in Eve's brain. Does that make sense? Her brain wasn't designed for shame. And so she says, the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye. Apparently, this is the first time the, the tree ever looks good. It, it looks different now. You change, you change God and the thing God is saying, hey, don't touch that. It's going to hurt you. All of a sudden looks really shiny um, and desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. And she gave it to her husband who was with her, not protecting her, not speaking the word of God over her. And he ate it too. And for the first time in human history, we have numbing. The serpent introduces the pain of distrust into Eve's heart and they numb they go after something to distract myself away from the pain. And you know what's really interesting? I work in addiction a lot. A lot of couples come in, and one of the main things you have to be able to address to address the need of the couple is to address the need of this, this maladaptive attachment in this person's life. And sometimes it's porn, or sometimes it's an, a substance, and sometimes it's another person. But you have to understand addiction. And one of the things you learn about addiction working with it is that nobody chooses addiction because it's good. I didn't need to say that out loud. You already knew that, but I'm just going to do it so we're all on the same page. Nobody chooses addiction because it's good. That honestly, the, the, the most, like, mind-numbing. So the idea that we have of addiction in, in Western medicine is about 60 years old. It was, it was uh, kind of started by a guy named Dr. Abraham Maslow. Uh, no, different Dr. Abraham. Maslow's a different guy. Don't. That's not the point of the story. A, a different... <laughs> A different Dr. Abraham, either way, he did this study where he put a rat all by himself in a cage with water and cocaine water. So regular water and cocaine water, and the rat's all by himself in the cage, and he says, let's see what happens. And so the rat obviously tastes both bottles, and pretty soon, every single rat starts to use cocaine. About 97% of them use it to the point of killing themselves. 
Well, about 20 years ago, about 18, 20 years ago, another guy looked at that experiment and he said, you know, that's really important to understand how powerful cocaine is. It's clearly very powerful. All of the rats abused it. Most of them killed themselves. He said, but there's something interesting about that experiment. There's only one rat. Rats are communal animals. And so he built what is now famously known as Rat Park, where rats can run around and have friendships and have rat sex and do all these really fun things <laughs> and have little rat communities. And he put the same two bottles, bottle of water and bottle of cocaine water. 3% of the rats in Rat Park used cocaine more than one time. Zero used it to the point of death. And what we realize is that addiction I don't care if you're talking about a chemical or pornography or a process addiction like perfectionism or something else. Addiction is not a chemical problem. It is a connection problem. <laughs> that we are living, you want to talk about a pandemic, it is a pandemic of isolation. And we keep trying to numb it. We keep trying to fill it with something else, with a false sense of security. I'm not even going to go there. I'm just going to tell you, we're going to keep trying to fill that need with something that won't meet the need when what we need is reconnection with God. So this is where that starts. Okay, okay, I didn't even mean to go there. Um, it's hard. It's hard for me because we have a lot of data now. We have a lot of research now that we can pretty conclusively say that this is the most addicted, obese, medicated, over, overspent, like uh, in-debt adult cohort in human history. And the further we get into that, the more we say we don't need God. As a, as a society, right? Then both of their eyes were opened and they realized that they were naked and they covered themselves with fig leaves. They made fig leaves, sewed together, made coverings for themselves. The first time in human history is that humans hide, that we go into hiding. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as they were walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This was their connection time. This was like when they used to hang out. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to him and said, where are you? And Adam answered. He said, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. This is the first time in his life that being naked is a problem. And he has to cover up because he's ashamed of who he is. And the first time in human history that humans hide. And he told him and he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, and taking responsibility for his life, <laughs> that woman, that woman, and this is even riskier, the woman that you gave me, <laughs> she gave me the apple. She gave me fruit. And we have this cohort, this entourage that always comes along with shame. We have numbing and we have hiding and we have blame. Last time I was talking about this, I was like, sweetheart, I was talking to my wife, sweetie, I need, um, I need like an example of a time that I've gone into blame. She's like, oh, babe, I got you. I got <laughs> we got examples. And she's like, yesterday, and this is actually true, uh, there was a night where my wife, I was like playing with the kids. I don't remember what I was doing that night, but she asked, sweetheart, will you do the dishes? I said, yeah, I got the dishes. And she like knows me. She's like, you'll, you'll, you got, you'll do the dishes? And I said, yes, I got the dishes. 
and I didn't do the dishes. So I woke up the next day and I'm getting ready for work. And as I'm like in a, in a hurry and I'm, I'm like running behind and I'm, I'm feeling stressed out, she says, sweetie, could you please do the dishes before you go to work? I'm like, yes, I can do the dishes. That's fine. Like, no problem. And now I'm irritated with her and I'm irritated with the situation. And I'm feeling I'm like running behind. And so I stop and I do the dishes and I get out the door and I get in the car and I get to the office and I'm walking towards my office door and I realize I didn't bring my office keys. And I'm stopping and I'm thinking and I realize my office keys are in my house on the counter in the kitchen when I put them down when I was doing the dishes. And the first thought out of my brain was, thank you, Sarah. I appreciate that. (laughs) That it's precognitive. I don't even have to think about it. My brain does it automatically. He says, you know what? I don't like this here, sweetie. You carry this weight because it leaves me feeling something about myself that I don't want to own. Running behind feeling late, showing up without my keys. What do I feel? I feel disorganized. I feel incompetent. I feel like I'm not doing a good job. I don't like that feeling. It's much more comfortable to be like, thanks a lot for obviously making me not follow through on my word the night before, which made me late the next day. Love you, right? Like, and we outsource. What are we doing? We're taking this anxiety that we don't know what to do with and we're outsourcing it. Blame, hiding, and numbing is this entourage that always comes along with shame. And it's really important, if we're going to talk about shame, it's really important that we know shame is the toxic, it's the dark side of something good. That shame is the dark side of something really healthy. And it's not a word that we like in our culture. In fact, it's a word that we mix up with shame all the time, but it is the dark side of guilt. What is guilt? Guilt is when I look at a problem in my life and I take ownership. Guilt is when I take responsibility for my actions, for my thought patterns, for my behavior. Guilt is when I said, oh, I did something stupid. I made a bad choice. I didn't follow through on my word with my wife, and now it left me with too much to do the next day. I made a bad choice. Why is that empowering? Because I can make a different choice. Shame says, I am a problem. The problem is I'm a failure. I'm not good enough. I'm struggling. I will always be a mess. What is the problem with shame? I can't change me. I can't be fundamentally different. I can't exchange my identity for a better choice. And so what we see is that shame is perfectly correlated. If you were to chart it out, perfectly correlated with things like addiction, depression, domestic violence, suicide, bullying, And what's really interesting is guilt. What we define as guilt, a healthy understanding of I made a bad choice and I have to own it, is inversely correlated. So it's exact opposite. The higher the rate of guilt, the lower the rates of all of those things I just listed. Because it's ownership. I'm taking ownership. And what does ownership require? It requires that I believe I'm fundamentally good so that I can separate myself from the the, uh, decision. One of the things about guilt is that it leads us into vulnerability. It leads us into reflection, ownership, adaption, change. Okay, all right, I didn't get my assignment done because I didn't schedule enough time to prep for the test and I got a bad grade or whatever it is. What does that mean? That means... I've got to say goodbye to my friends earlier. I've got to sit down earlier. I've got to really dial in whatever's causing me like not to focus. I've got to take ownership of this time and I've got to get a better grade. Adaption and vulnerability, it causes me to look at myself and it causes me to let me be seen by other people. 
Shame drives us away from vulnerability and it drives us into, just like we saw in the garden, hiding. There's this, uh, there's this moment. Can I get vulnerable? There's a moment in my daughter's life that I'm not proud of. It was like four or five years ago. The room got really quiet. I promise it's not that bad. <laughs> it's like four or five years ago. So my daughter's nine now. So she was like four then. And we went to Disneyland and I like Disneyland. And I really like thrill rides. I know Disneyland is not the best place to go for thrill rides, but I like Disneyland anyways, don't judge me. And we're driving on the way to Disneyland. And I, I mean, since Liv was born, I was like, I cannot wait to go on roller coasters with this girl. I can't wait to like mountain bike down mountains. I can't wait to go ice skating. I can't wait to, I love these things and I want to share them with her. Have you all, have you, like the parents in the room, did you ever do something too early? Yeah. Okay, I appreciate that. So we're driving up to Disneyland, and I am hyping up Gadget's Go Coaster. I'm not sure if you're familiar. It's in Toontown. As far as roller coasters made for, like, four-year-olds, it's pretty epic. And I'm, I'm hyping this up, and I'm talking about how much she's going to love it and how exciting it is. And do we have a picture of the first one, the happy one? This is her. So what I meant to do, I was like, I'm going to share something so special with my daughter. I'm going to share her first roller coaster experience. Thank you. Good. And I was going to take a video of it. I was going to take, I'm going to take a slow-mo video of it, but the thing was too bumpy. So my hand like hit it. And then I captured this one on accident. <laughs> Which came next. That's all I got. All right, you can take it down now before I lose all the ladies in the room. They're going to be like, I do not like Brian anymore. <laughs> we did a lot of, we did a lot of work after this ride. We got off. We talked about it for a long time, as you can imagine. <laughs> I'm a therapist. We've processed this moment several times. We've gotten back up to Pirates of the Caribbean, which I think is good. We're not quite back to the Go Coaster, but I'm hopeful that we're on the right track. But what are we looking at in the first picture, right? We're looking at this joy, this happiness. When I look at that picture, what I see is trust. I, I trust daddy is what that says. Because obviously, daddy would never put me on something that would terrify me. Obviously, that goes without saying. Daddy's not sadistic. And then that second photo is something I bet we can all relate to. A moment in our life when the floor falls out. When we really had high hopes for something and it disappoints. And worse than disappoints, it terrifies. Like, Oh my gosh, I was so confident God was calling me to start this business, or I was so confident God was calling me to marry this person, or, and you fill in the blank, and then it doesn't go the way you thought it was going to go. And so what, what's worse than the threat of the moment, oh, this isn't working the way I thought it was, is the threat of the meaning. I thought God was with me. I thought God could be trusted. What does this mean? And so we go to this place where we want to now start to relate to Jesus without vulnerability. And the thing about vulnerability is if, if I can't tolerate vulnerability myself, uncertainty, risk, emotional exposure, if I can't tolerate those things in myself, I can't tolerate them in Jesus either. Because Jesus is a model. And so there's this moment where Jesus goes into the wilderness and it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible, but I don't hear it preached very often. We don't like to talk about Jesus's weakness. We don't like to talk about moments where Jesus was scared. 
And that is not, if that's difficult to hear, that is not my word. This is the, the word of God. Jesus felt fear. And that's hopeful. Why? Because Jesus didn't come down from heaven to show us what God is like. God came down from heaven to show us what true humanity is like, what being God's child is like, what trusting in a father who is trustworthy and loves you is like. And so there's this passage in Matthew 4 that says, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. So let me pause. Jesus was led where? By whom? Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Is that where our brains go when we wake up in the wilderness? When my job is struggling, when the sale hasn't come through, when my wife doesn't, uh, like, feels really hurt by me and I don't know how to repair it, am I thinking to myself, Jesus is taking me into the wilderness because there's a, there's a fear in my heart that I'm harboring that I can't even see and he wants to root it out for deeper freedom? Or do I think to myself, I knew the devil told me to marry you. I knew this was a bad idea. I felt it in my bones. We love to blame things on the devil. The, the devil did not give you a flat tire. A nail that was in the road gave you the flat tire. He didn't make you eat the donut. That donut was delicious. You ate the donut and you loved it. And that's okay. We love to give the devil all kinds of power. Now, I don't say this. I don't say this with false humility. I don't say this with any kind of bravado like I am any match for the devil, but my daddy is. And when we walk around... When we walk around believing that we are being defeated, we speak it, we think it, and we manifest it in our life. So it says, to be, de- to be tempted by the devil. After 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That sounds like an, overstatement, an understatement to me. The tempter came to men, and he said, if you are the son of God, does that strategy sound familiar? He knows if he says, hey, Jesus, break rank with what God has called you to do. Jesus would be like, why would I do that? But he says, if you really are the son of God, why are you suffering? Why are you alone in the, the wilderness where nobody cares? Nobody's like talking about you back at the synagogue. The religious people who, who define and direct the spiritual temperature of Israel, they don't even know your name aren't you supposed to be like a prophet or something? If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And he said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And here's my theory. I don't think Jesus is talking to the devil right there. I think Jesus is talking to himself right there. I think he is clinging to the word of God in a moment of pain, saying, I know who my dad is. You cannot speak death over my life. There is nothing more powerful than the word of God. And we love to take a scene like that out of the narrative, don't we? Because it's like, I don't want to see a scared Jesus. I don't want to see a Jesus clinging because he's in pain. There's an article I saw about, um, it was a while ago. It was probably a year or more ago. And 
It was in a very large publication, which I'm not going to name because I'm about to be slightly critical of this article. But it was an article that was named something roughly along the lines of like why Jesus is the ultimate superhero. And I kind of liked it at first, and I'm reading through this list. And most of the list was pretty cool. I'll, I'll tell you what they were. There was just a couple of them that left me with like, wait, there's something wrong here. So some of them were like decent. They said he used powerful words. I'm like, yeah, I'll give you that. Um, he had no pride issues. That's like kind of cool for a superhero. He didn't wear a mask, which is that's pretty good. I like that one. <laughs> he didn't use technology. I'm like, okay, whatever. Uh, he never sinned. And he, there was no kryptonite. I'm like, okay, I'll give you that one. Then there was, there was a few that I really liked that I thought were epic. Like he scared demons. Absolutely. Yes. Connected to people. I love it. Both God and man at the same time. He controlled the elements, stormed somebody. How epic is that? He walked on water. He didn't need weapons and he defeated death, which to me is the ultimate trump card in the superhero debate, right? Like it makes me picture, forgive me, I'm a therapist. It makes me picture like a superhero process group where they're like sitting in a circle and they're processing their exploits and their hard times. And like Superman says, I defeated, you know, Lex Luthor and he's kind of proud of it. And then it gets to Jesus and he said, I defeated death. And they say, it's like, is that like his, is that your supervillain's name? He said, no, no, no. The phenomenon of death. <laughs> the grave. I beat it. It has no power anymore. Thank you, me. Yes. So good. I like that. I thought that was so good. And then there was a couple that actually I was like, wait, this doesn't set right. He says he never made mistakes which I'm not going to debate anybody. The Bible doesn't claim that he didn't make mistakes. It claimed that he never sinned. It claimed that he was fully human, though. He was even-tempered. He was not even-tempered. Y'all, read the book. He was, he was never in danger. Like, they got a different Bible. And then the last one, and this is like probably the real reason I included this, it says, because he was fearless. And I think I know what they were saying. They were saying he was courageous. But fearless, meaning without fear. No, you just took away one of the most beautiful parts of my gospel. You took away the peace that let him identify with me. And it's really important for us to understand that for us to understand what we're seeing in the wilderness, we have to know what happened right before the wilderness. Literally, the sentence before it says he was led into the wilderness, it says this. And Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to be baptized. But John tried to deter him, saying, I don't need to baptize you. And do you come to me? I need to, oh, Jesus says, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. And Jesus replied, let it be so. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. What John is saying is like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to baptize God. And, and Jesus is like, I get it. It's tough, but just like, this is proper. We got we to gotta follow the rules. <laughs> Let me be your model here. And then John consented. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went out of the water. In that moment, heaven opened. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. And that is the moment. That's the anchor. That is the catalyst that Jesus takes with him into 40 days of solitude and suffering and clings to 
when he's being tempted. And we think that we can be stronger than Jesus. There's one more verse I want to I wanna share with you as, as I let us close. I'm, I'm, I think that music means that we're approaching our time. <laughs> in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, there's a verse in verse 11. It says, Dear, dear Corinthians, I can't tell you how much I long for you to enter this wide open spacious life but we didn't fence you in. This smallness you feel comes from within you. Your lives aren't small, but you're living them in a small way. I am speaking as plainly as I can and with great affection. Open up your lives. Live openly and expansively. And I love that language so much. You are living small. Your life is not small. You are a child of the Most High God, but you are living in hiding. You're living in this cramped little corner of your world so that nobody can see how scared you are, and you're living small. And he he even includes the way out in that verse, doesn't he? Live openly. Why? Because an open life lives to an expansive life. Step in. Open up and step in, but it takes the courage that we see modeled in Jesus. I know you're scared. I know you have been disappointed. You would have moments in your life where people should have shown up for you and they didn't. People should have loved you. Parents, friends, family members, lovers should have said, I see you and you're good and they weren't there for you. And so your heart said, okay, I get it. I'm not going to do that again. And it holds that memory in a really specific category of memory. It's what we call a trauma. A trauma is a memory that is so charged that your brain says, whoa, I need to remember this to protect me in the future. And it does that in a very specific way. What it does is the right brain, which holds emotion and sensation, all the stuff you feel in your body when you're scared, it holds it in the right brain. Your left brain is language processing and rationale and all of the the linguistic and logical functions that we need to talk ourselves out of a corner, right? And so the brain knows that I need to hold on to this alarm system so it shuts down the highway between those two halves because if my, my right and left brain can't talk about something, it can't integrate it. It can't release the alarm. Have you ever like had something really rough happen with a family member and you're just like talking to your friend about it, maybe you're going for a walk. By the time you get to the walk, it just doesn't feel like that big a deal anymore. Your brain was integrating. It was literally healing as you were walking. It was making sense out of this experiment or this uh, thing that just happened to you. And in a trauma, it says, nope, shut it down because we have to preserve this fear. When you do what it says in Paul's letters where you confess your sins, one to another, that wall quite literally comes down. And our brain starts to do something that it is treated as dangerous and it starts to integrate, which is why sometimes when you're telling something really raw, you think you're good and then all of a sudden, like tears fill up your eyes or you get like shaky. Why? Because your body is literally releasing the alarm system that might be 20 years old. Pain and fear in your body that you've been carrying and keeping you living small. And God's word is saying, if you will take the risk of opening up, I will step you into expansive living. 
I'm just gonna hand the mic over to Pastor John. Hey, I want Dr. Brian to just pray for us around these things that he just spoke about. If you don't mind, take it away, man. You guys, just get comfortable. Just lift your arms. Just pack it and say it low so you don't get tired. Lord, we open up our hearts to you. And we thank you that you installed this brilliant alarm system in our brains to keep us safe that, you call, that we call trauma this amazing way that when we are in unsafe circumstances, our brain knows to protect us. And Lord, we open our hearts to you and we ask that any of those alarm systems that we do not need anymore, that you would give the courage to speak the pain, that you would give us the courage to go to our connect groups or to our pastors, to the person standing right next to us if they're comfortable with it, and to say, I'm carrying something that I've been living and hiding and I want to step into the open. Lord, I know that you will meet us there. God, I pray for your Holy Spirit because we are insufficient to fill the hearts of every person in this room and you would give us courage to live like you modeled for us. That we would take the risk of trusting our Father and feeling what it feels like when he catches us. God, I pray for every marriage in this room. I pray for the businesses. Lord, I pray for every stronghold that the enemy would keep us in fear over. And I ask that you would break the chain of fear in the name of Jesus. Thank you for giving us the roadmap. Thank you for telling us what we need to do to experience your healing and your transformation. And we speak your name in faith and step into that openness in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. To find out more about our locations, team, and what we do here at Awakened Church, go to awakenedchurch.com.